So if you don't know me, my name's Darren. And a few years ago, I was listening to an interview with Oprah Winfrey. And she was talking about her relationship with the poet, the author, Maya Angelou. And the way she described her relationship with Maya Angelou was this. I have sat at this woman's feet. And that conveyed so much in the way that she said it, in her tone. It implied that there was a real sense of intimacy, humility, and an appetite to learn what she could from Maya Angelou. I have the privilege today of taking us through the next part of our series, which is called Sitting at the Feet of Jesus, where we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, Dom gave us an introduction, setting the context of when this passage was happening in the context of Jesus' life. So Jesus has been baptised, he's overcome temptation, he started to preach, he's called his first disciples, and he started healing people. So word is spreading. This is no ordinary guy. This is someone very, very special. People are hearing about him. Crowds now are beginning to gather to come and listen to him speak. So he's on a mountainside, and he's going to deliver, well, the greatest sermon ever delivered, words that are going to change the world and transform the lives of countless people forever. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to look at some verses in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7. So we're looking at the beginning and the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But what I'd like to do this morning is actually start with the ending in chapter 7, because the end talks about having a firm foundation. And I think it's good that we kind of remind ourselves of who our foundation is before we look at who and what our foundation said to us in the sermon. So if we could have uh, the first slide up, please, Chris, thank you. So this is from Matthew chapter 7, and this is in the NIV version that I'm reading from today. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 28, where it talk, Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish builders. So he's saying this at the end of all the chapters that have come previously, which we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks in more detail. So this is what the Lord says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. First thing here, Jesus has taught as one with authority, not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus, of course, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. It's no surprise he speaks with authority. He's the king and he knows it. And he, he teaches in a different way to anybody else. But let's look at what he says, though, about building your house on the rock. 
So if we hear the words that the Lord says to us and we don't put them into practice, then what's the point? Essentially, we're building our house on sand. But if we put into practice what we hear from him, what his word tells us to do, and we, and we act on that and we put it into practice into our lives, we apply that, then we're building our house on the rock. But it occurred to me that for a house to be built on the rock is something that's very intentional, it's very deliberate, it doesn't just happen. I live in a village in Cambridgeshire called Yaxley. Down the road from me there's an area called the Hamptons, which uh, was well known for being full of clay pits, and it was a a centre of brick manufacturing for many years. Now, as happens with much of the land in in this country, it gets turned into housing developments. So there are a number of quite sprawling developments there now, but the builders and the developers and the planners had to be very strategic as to where they built those houses to make sure that they were being put on solid foundations. And that was like a reminder to me that we, whilst we know who our foundation is, we need to reaffirm that and declare that, yes, the Lord is our rock, he's our firm foundation, and we have to be very deliberate about that, intentional about that, to remind ourselves, who are we going to build our lives on? We've been thinking about build my life. We've been hearing from what Helen shared about the rock. We know the Lord is our rock, but we need to, I feel before we look into what our rock tells us, we need to just redeclare that and reassess that as we posture our hearts, position ourselves to sit at his feet and receive what he has to say. So I'm just going to pray before we look at the opening part of the Sermon on the Mount. So Lord, thank you that you are our firm foundation. Lord, I pray that as the architect of our lives, Lord, that you would help us to build our lives on you, on the rock, that we may hear your word and put it into practice as as you instruct us to do, Lord, that we would be able to withstand the storms of life that come against us because we are founded on you, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our solid foundation that never lets us down, never leaves us, never forsakes us that if we are rooted in you, Lord, then we can withstand anything that comes our way. And we pray, Lord, that you just inspire us in you as we look at your your words this morning, your amazing words that you delivered, Lord. pray this in your name. Amen. So now we're going to look at the opening part of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So I'm just going to read this. So the Beatitudes... Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Now those words and how we can, we can possibly try and encapsulate what these words mean in the time that we have is impossible. It's like, as I was saying to Jonathan the other day, it's like taking the ocean and trying to put it into a cup. Can't be done. But the good thing is that these words are so powerful and so profound, all we need to do is extract a drop, a drop of truth from them. Just one single drop can nourish us, really encourage us, really inspire us, and give us really a firm foundation in who who our rock is. Now, we've heard from Nick at how deep the ocean is, at the 11-kilometre depth. How much deeper are these words? But I believe that the Lord has kind of shown me some stuff as I was going through this as to how we can kind of skim the surface. If we, if we look at the ocean and we're getting a rock and we're skimming, skimming it over the surface, there are a few drops that come out of that, which I believe could be really impactful, certainly for me. And it's just my prayer that we do get, it, get a few of those sprinkles on us today from here. So, first of all, beatitudes. What does that mean? It's from the, the root of the word is Latin, beatitudo, which means blessedness. Hence the blessed are statements that we see in the passage. And the title of today's talk is actually called Flourishing. Flourishing. You might think, well, I don't see the word flourishing anywhere in the passage. But you would if you saw the original ancient Greek text. The word blessed in this passage comes from the Greek word makarios, which means to be happy, to thrive, and to flourish. So you could say, flourishing are the poor in spirit, flourishing are those who mourn, etc. So let's have a look in a little bit more detail in, in, in the time that we have this morning at some of this. First thing that kind of draws my attention, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. I wonder what was going through Jesus' mind. No, he knows what he's going to deliver. He knows the impact it's going to have. It's like a, a real anchor in his ministry. And he says when he sees the crowds, it occurs to me the compassion he must have had on that crowd that was coming. We know that later on in Matthew, he has compassion on the 4,000 when he feeds them. He knows they're hungry. So he's sitting down. He sees the crowds coming up. He knows what he's going to say. He knows the impact it's going to have. And he has compassion. So already, there's kind of the scene there with his disciples, who I can just imagine them sitting at his feet in that posture of humility, with a real appetite for the wisdom that they're going to get, because they don't know what he's going to say. I mean, we look at this passage now, and it's so famous and so well-known, so beloved, but we have to remember, nobody had heard this. This was going to be like a whole new transformative moment in history. So as Jesus begins to teach, first thing he says here, blessed are the poor in spirit, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's always tempting when you see passages like this to kind of lift them up out of context and kind of apply a meaning to them. But I think it's important here that we look at what the Lord said as a whole and see how each bit relates to the other. Because he delivered this as one sermon. So what could that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit, again, if you're taking it in isolation, it could be that you're anxious, you're worried, sad. 
But I think the thing what we have to look at here is the kingdom of heaven part, which implies God, God's presence. Seek first his kingdom. So to me, what this is saying here, and it may encapsulate a vast number of things, but for me, what, what I get from this is, if you're poor in spirit, you recognize the need you have for the Lord. How utterly desperate and hopeless your situation is without the presence of God in your life. Because the moment you realize that you need God is the moment you begin to flourish. And that really is my main point today. The moment that you recognize how much you need God is the moment you begin to flourish. James 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you know you need God, you seek him, seek and you will find. And we know that just one touch from the king changes everything. But it starts with recognizing your own spiritual poverty, how impoverished your spirit is without God, how much you need him. Once you recognize that and you realize how much you need him, you're going to look for him, you're going to cry out to him, and he'll come. And that's when you begin to flourish because he's come to you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, this could apply such a vast area, mourning, grief, loss. But if we're following on from being impoverished in spirit, I'm, I'm reminded of, of how in, in, in scriptures, when, when people mourned, they would kind of rip their clothes apart, you know, they rip their robes and they'd wear sackcloth and ash. And I think what this is here, if, if we're taking it into, into relation, following on from being poor in spirit, what I sensed here was, was grieving the, the state of your soul, the gr- grieving, grieving sin, essentially. Grieving sin. Thinking to yourself, you know, how could I have done what I did? How could I have been so disgraceful, so callous, so cruel, so unclean in my behaviour? And you think, wow. And there's a kind of a grief, an emotional grief and a turmoil that comes. But of course, in John 14, the Lord says the Holy Spirit is the comforter. When you come to that place of repentance and you invite the Holy Spirit in, you confess what you've done. There's a comfort that comes, a supernatural peace that comes. And I think that ties in with being poor in spirit. But again, it's a huge, huge area and it could apply to, to many different aspects. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So it might look like a contradiction in terms again. Some of these kind of are kind of paradoxical almost. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does meek mean? It could mean, well, you know, to be mild-mannered, even-tempered, humble. You know, just, a nice, just a nice person who kind of has a certain grace about them. It says here that they will inherit the earth. You know, like many of you, or maybe some of you, uh, one of my kind of guilty pleasures during the week is to watch The Apprentice. Who watches The Apprentice here? Good, I'm not the only one, a few of you. For the, yeah, for the record, I think the right person definitely got fired this week. You know, <laughs> that wasn't very merciful, was it? Um, but um, if we look at The Apprentice, and of course the best bit's always in the boardroom, when, when they're, when they're about, one of them's about to get fired by Lord Sugar, and they're all fighting, they're all being very aggressive, trying to defend their positions... There isn't really much meekness there. They're all really going for it because they so desperately want that material wealth 
and, and the status of being Lord Sugar's business partner and getting all that money. But here, the Lord is saying, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So I believe here the Lord is talking about something a lot more profound than material wealth here. You know, in Psalm 37, verse 11, it says that the meek will inherit the land and live in peace. And I felt the Lord saying that there's something about peace and meekness here. Because Proverbs 14 tells us that a heart at peace gives life to the body. So I kind of sense that meekness is a path to peace and peace is a path to health. And if you have health, then the world is your oyster, essentially. What good is having material wealth if you can't, if you can't use it? But if you, if you have peace, and if you think about anyone who's meek, if you can picture, picture somebody who you know is that kind of, has that beautiful meek characteristic, they tend to be very peaceful, very chilled. They don't tend to have, attract conflict or strife. They have storms of life, of course, like everybody else. We will have the storms, but there's a certain grace and peace about them. And I think that's what the Lord is kind of saying here, is that if we have that response to situations of life, we have that grace that, he, that sustains us, gives us peace. And as the word says, that peace can give us health. And while we're on that path, there is a certain grace that comes with that, which is more valuable than material wealth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Perhaps a little bit more obvious, a bit more straightforward than some of the paradoxical ones. You know, Psalm 42 starts with that beautiful opening, doesn't it? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. We will be filled, draw near to God. It all kind of ties up. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Seek and we will find him. Psalm 119 talks about my soul being faint with longing for your salvation. All of this are just beautiful illustrations of how if we seek God, we'll find him. And again, it comes down to the essential point. We flourish. When we do all of these things, we flourish when we seek God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Lord, later on in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lamentations tells us that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Have you ever forgiven somebody or received forgiveness, as we all have? Isn't it just a, a relief? The moment we experience forgiveness, the moment we give forgiveness or receive forgiveness, we flourish. We flourish. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. With this one, you know, who, who among us is pure in heart? Without God in your heart, you can't be pure. You can't be pure of heart. It's that simple. We need God to cleanse, to cleanse us, to purify us. Powerful example of this is from King David. After he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51. What did he write? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The man after God's own heart needed God to come and cleanse his heart, as we all do. But guess what? He comes when we call him. And it's because of him that we can see him. So we need, we need God to
to cleanse us, and then we can see God. So we are flourishing the moment we recognize that. The moment we say, Lord, create in me a clean heart, we're flourishing. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You know, we know that our God is a God of peace. The blessing that we quote very often from number six, may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Corinthians, Paul writes that our God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. So if our God is a God of peace and we're his children, doesn't it follow that we should resemble him? Parents, do not, do not your children resemble you? Children, you take after your dad cares. Congratulations. It's great, isn't it? Um, but if, if children take after their parents and our Heavenly Father is a God of peace, it follows that we should be peacemakers because we are his children. That's our hallmark. And in Proverbs, it says, Proverbs 12, it says that there is joy for those who promote peace. There is joy for those who promote peace. So we're flourishing when we promote peace. We experience joy. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to, to read the next one as well. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's a tough one, isn't it? How can persecution ever be seen as a good thing? And yet, we hear stories of persecution all over the world, people who are unable to practice their faith, people who are, who are tortured and suffer great, great hardships. And yet, in some of those stories, <clears throat> you see examples of people who, despite the hardships, are, are still able to praise God. They're still able to rejoice. They're still able to flourish. Supernaturally, they're sustained by God. I mean, here, persecution, you're being persecuted for the Lord, for the kingdom. The king sees. The Lord says that, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What he's saying is, if you're persecuted for his name's sake, you're in good company. And you're recognized, and there's a reward coming your way. Later on, later, the Lord is going to say, store for yourself treasures in heaven. What treasures are being stored up for those who are able to endure persecution for his glory, for his name's sake? As an ambassador for the kingdom, you take a hit for the kingdom, the king recognizes it and rewards you. If you're in the army here and you suffer a hardship in battle, you get a medal, you get, you get a reward, you get recognized for that. You get, there's a valor that comes with that. I think that's what the Lord is, is, is saying here. And persecution, you know, it, it, again, Proverbs 12 says, the root of the, of the root of the righteous will flourish. If I could just have the next slide up, please, Chris. What we're looking at here isn't a righteous picture at all, but it's flourishing. This is a picture taken from last summer outside my house. And you can see there's loads of ivy growing up the side, growing up the, uh, the walls. Now, this ivy is everywhere. And you can't kill it easily. I've tried. I've put weed killer on it. I've, put, I've read all different things on, on, online. I've spoken to tree surgeons, 
And this particular ivy that I have is absolutely flourishing. It's, in fact, it flourishes so quickly, it goes up the, it's going up the walls, into the, into the guttering, around the side of the house. An absolute nightmare. I had mounds of it growing in my back garden. It was just everywhere. And so I've got rid of it as best as I can, but guess what? I can't kill it. I can't get rid of it. It would, it would be, it's a massive job to try and get, get to the root of it and, and extract it. But this ivy is flourishing. It's so secure. It doesn't matter what the wet, what weather comes, what storm comes its way, winter, spring, hail, rain, snow, it doesn't matter. It grows and it blossoms, it thrives, it's shiny. It's even got these leaves on it. If you spray weed killer on it, it just runs off it. It just resists it. And I saw a real parallel there about flourishing and security. This ivy knows its position. It knows its foundation. It's very secure in its foundation. And because of that, it can withstand anything. I mean, if the worst were to happen and the house were to fall down, the ivy would still be there. Even the bits that I've cut away, they're still in the brickwork. They're lodged in with the little tendrils. And if I were to remove them, I could damage the brickwork. It's absolutely a really strong example of what it is to flourish. So there we are. The ivy reminds me. So I'm actually kind of, I'm seeing it grow, grow up in my garden. It's coming back. And I'm actually encouraged by it because I can see, do you know what? It's a reminder for me of how I need to respond to, to, to situations in life. And I just want to close on uh, a couple of verses from Psalm 92, where it talks about flourishing and our foundation. And as we look through that, I'm just going to invite the band up, who are going to just lead us in a closing song. Thank you. Uh, um, So the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Proclaiming the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Again, coming back to knowing who our foundation is. If you're on the rock, you're flourishing, essentially. If God is your rock, you have opportunities to thrive, to flourish, to grow, and to withstand the storms of life that come. So let's that be our, our intentional decision today, is to build our lives on the rock, to build our lives on the foundation, knowing that if we do that, we will flourish.